So last week, we started our launch series. It's called Welcome to the Journey. And it's not so much about the name of the church, Welcome to the Church Called the Journey, but what that name is about, the journey that we think God has called us all to as followers of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Jesus' invitation into life. We think it's about inviting Jesus into our limited life, our experience, and somehow trying to make more of it. But what Jesus did was invite us into his life. Come, follow me. He invited us into a journey. And on that journey, he said, if you come and follow behind, that was the word in the Greek, I will make you, I will do a creative, intentional act of changing you into someone who is you. They were fishermen that Jesus was calling. So they're going to make you fishers of men. In other words, it's going to be you, everything I called you to be, everything I created that's precious about you, but now given life, given purpose, given fulfillment, given power. That's the journey that Jesus invites us into. And we think that's what we're to be about here. So last week it was, what's in a name? You know, why the journey? Today I want to ask, what kind of people say yes to that journey? What kind of people actually follow Jesus? You know, we have our idea of a stereotype when it comes to devout religious people. Now listen again to what they did. Jesus said, come follow me. And what we saw that they did was immediately drop their nets. Who can do that? Imagine having Jesus suddenly show up in your life, even if you do believe he's someone worth following, and he says to you, leave everything behind. Just come and follow me. Just imagine what kind of people can pull that off. And so what we tend to do is sit back and say, well, these must be people who don't have much of a life, (laughs) not a lot of obligations, People that probably are failing at life and therefore are desperate for any opportunity. People who might be easily swayed, therefore probably not very well educated people, willing to be easily manipulated. Are those the kind of people that follow Jesus? In order to bolster our contemporary idea of what a hyper-religious person is, we think about those early disciples and we tend to minimize them. I did a little Google on the disciples of Jesus. It was amazing how often I found descriptives of them that said that they were pretty much all uneducated, fishermen, low-class people. Even Christianity tends to look at the disciples through that lens. And for us, we see that as a noble thing. God chose the weaker things of this world to confound the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. In doing that, we sort of agree to a characterization of the early followers of Jesus that is not completely accurate. Were there fishermen who followed Jesus? Of course. Were they uneducated and ignorant? By no means. And were they only fishermen? By no means. What I thought would be interesting for us today is to take a look at the cast of characters in this journey with Jesus that we're doing over these weeks in the Gospels, this first journey of the followers and disciples of Jesus as they experience the great joys and the deep sorrows, the doubts, the challenges, and eventually most of them emerging with this transforming faith that turned them into the core of people through which Jesus transformed the world. 
We're not going to do any kind of exegesis today, but I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew 4, we talked about the calling of uh, four of the disciples. I just want to take you through a, a few other passages. Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. This is Matthew, also known as Levi, sitting at his tax booth. And we see the same word that Jesus called out to the fishermen, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just go forward into Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Cephas, or Peter, his brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I want to take you to one other passage in Luke. Go forward to Luke chapter 8. And we see a broader picture of this group that was not just about these 12 men, but also included women. This was scandalous in Jesus' day, that he would have a large crowd, many people following him. Among them were women of quite significant influence, engaged in caring for Jesus and being trained by Jesus, which uh, alone would have made the Pharisees think Jesus worthy of death that he treated women with such respect and dignity and a high level. Let's read uh, Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled from town to town and one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, but also some women, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. To answer the question, what kind of people actually follow Jesus? All we really need to do is to look at this list of people. And we'll learn a great deal. So that's all I want to do with you today. I want to go through this list, and as best as I can understand, as best as we are able to know, portray this unusual cast of characters. So let, let's start with the disciples. Their, their first is Simon, also called Cephas, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were fishermen from Bethsaida, as were four other of the original apostles. So there were six who were from a fishing town, all worked together and knew each other. Here's Simon. You know Simon. He's the impetuous one. He's Put your foot in your mouth, Simon. Always ready to say what he thinks. And when he hits it right, he knocks it out of the ballpark. But when he gets it wrong, oh boy, does he get it wrong. Passionate, impetuous, loudmouth, talker, one step forward, two steps backward, Peter. 
in one evening ready to fight to the death to save Jesus and then denying him. Feet of clay, Peter, who meant well, who sincerely declared who he believed Jesus to be, but often found his personal fortitude did not match his aspirations. Peter and his brother Andrew. The word Andrew means the brave. You don't hear much from Andrew. What we think of Andrew is more the strong, silent type, confident, a seeker of truth. The fact that he was following John the Baptist is important because what it meant was he was devout enough to be a follower of the Jewish faith, but dissatisfied enough that when a voice from the wilderness came out crying, prepare the way of the Lord, it rang true in his heart. And it was out of that that he came to Christ. There's Philip and Nathaniel, friends from the same village as Simon and Andrew. Philip, we know, is religious because when, when he comes to Christ, he goes back to his friend Nathaniel and says, I think we found the king. I think we found the guy. The few times you hear him in the Gospels, what we learn about Philip is that he's sort of the pragmatic one. Before the feeding of the thousands, it's Philip who says, well, wh where are we going to find food? He's the feet firmly planted on earth kind of guy. Here's where we are. Here's what we've got. Let's be real here. That was Philip. Philip the realist. Philip the pragmatist. His friend Nathaniel, a passionate devotee of the teachings of his day. We know that because he argues when Philip says, I think we found the king. He was one of these black and white guys in his theology. You know, he had this view of the teachings of the Old Testament Scripture. He believed them firmly. He was passionate, but those very beliefs could have gotten in his way. Because when he talks about the king coming from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? This idea doesn't fit into my belief system. That, that was Nathaniel, devoted to his faith. So devoted that it might have become itself a stumbling block to Christ's invitation. James and John, the other two brothers. It's interesting that John is designated as the disciple whom Jesus loves, which lets us know that he had a caring, devoted side to him. But together, James and John were called what? The sons of thunder. And it wasn't because they liked Marvel comics. Because they clashed. John was part of this twosome that when they got it on, they got it on. Sons of thunder. James and John were mama's boys. They were. We have this scene towards the end of Jesus' ministry where their mom comes up and, and the mother says, Jesus, I, I've got a favor to ask you. <laughs> Moms, don't ever do this. Especially when you're talking to the Messiah. I've got a favor to ask you, Jesus. Well, what's that? Well, if it's not too much, I'd like one of my sons to sit at your right hand and the other one to sit at your left hand. Pretty ambitious mom. Think about this. James and John kind of let her do it. And maybe they were partners in it. I don't know. I don't know what exactly that says about them. As a group, they were perhaps an ambitious family. 
perhaps a bit status-seeking. John, as an individual, was the youngest of the disciples. We do think of him as caring, carrying his heart on his sleeve, capable of great devotion. The fact that he's called the disciple whom Jesus loves, skeptics love to take that and twist that and pervert it and turn it into something evil and, and dark. But it's really a paternal relationship that we see here. Remember, John probably is 14 years old. Jesus is 33 years old. It's a very much a mentoring, sort of the son that Jesus never had, the uncle, big brother, father figure. There was a great relationship between the two of them. That was John the Beloved. His brother James, James is a born leader. He was known to be hot-tempered. He was ambitious. He was strong. He was haughty. He would often think that the right thing to do is for God to punish evil people and those who rejected him. And he liked the idea of being on the side of the righteous that got to watch that happen to people. That was James. So we've, we've dealt with six. A half dozen of the 12 apostles, all of them very different, although, of course, fishermen from a seacoast town. But Matthew is the first one we come to that really stands in stark contrast. We know that he's a tax collector. Preachers, and myself included, have made a big deal about that because it means that Matthew was a religious and political sellout to his own people. He was in league with the Roman government, and so we kind of see him in that lost state. But Matthew was more than that. He was a very successful businessman. He was well-educated. He was a man of wealth. He was more of the worldly type of Jewish man, more the businessman. You know, knew how to make a buck. That was Matthew. Thomas. What do we think of when we think of Thomas? The doubter. This is a surprise to me when I got old enough to ask my dad where he got my name. And he said to me, I, I named you after the disciple Thomas. And your middle name's after the disciple John. So I'm Thomas John. I said, well, dad, why did you pick those? He says, they're my favorite disciples. Thomas, the doubter, is your favorite disciple. Who was Thomas? Thomas was most likely the most educated of all the disciples. He was an architect. Let me ask you, how many engineers in this room? You're more like Thomas probably than any of the other disciples. You see, because for you, you like to see how things come together. It's important to see the structure of things. Even ideas get deconstructed and put back together so that we understand what makes them work. Is it any wonder, therefore, that Thomas tended to look at things and said, I need to understand this. I need to experience. I need my hands on it. And therefore, when the other disciples, who, by the way, did get to see Jesus, and therefore believed, said to him, we've seen him, he's alive. And he said, no, I need to get my hands on him. If I get my hands on him, I'll believe. Thomas is what gives hope to all skeptics and intellectuals and engineer types and thoughtful types that the journey is possible even for us. That's Thomas, sometimes skeptical, 
But once he was committed, my dad pointed out it was Thomas who asked the question, Lord, where are you going so we can go with you? That led Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. My dad points out that once the other disciples learned that Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem to die, it was Thomas who said, let us go that we may die with him. That's the Thomas I was named after. <laughs> Skeptic, but once sold, sold out. That's Thomas. There was a second Simon, known as Simon the Zealot. We don't talk much about these final three, but actually we know a lot about Simon by virtue of the single designation he's given. Simon the Zealot. Who were the zealots of Jesus' day? They were the radical revolutionaries that believed the only way that they would break free from Rome was by violence. And when they looked to the Messiah, they looked to a military conquering king. And they believed they were readying themselves to be his army. Those were the zealots. They were the extreme right-wing militants. So we're building a pretty interesting cast of characters, aren't we? Can you imagine Simon the Zealot sitting across the table from Matthew, who is in league with Rome? Can you picture this? Simon the Zealot. There was Jude and James, the lesser. They were farmers. As opposed to the fishermen who had to go out every day, catch their catch. If they didn't work, there was no food. Farmers were a very different group of people. Stayed patient, understood the seasons, knew that there were seasons for working hard. Seasons for waiting, seasons for sowing, seasons for reaping. Most farmers I know are the calmest people I've ever met. Understood exactly what Jesus was speaking of when he spoke of the harvest and of the soil and of the seeds. And then finally, there's Judas. Judas Iscariot. Every time he opens his mouth in scripture, he's criticizing, questioning, he represents those who come to follow Jesus with their own set of filters that are so ingrained and so fixed that they just can't see what's in front of them apart from it. To the point where, in his case, he could never get past it. We don't really know a lot about Judah's story. We've speculated a lot. But we do know that he's the one who set out on a journey to follow and not only fell away, but turned bitter and angry and betrayed. Interesting cast of characters. Let's expand it just quickly to a few others. Let's look at these women who are part of the entourage as well. There's Mary and Martha, sisters from Bethany. Let's go to Mary first. She's the easy one. Young, dreamer, worshiper, idealist, non-traditionalist had no problem breaking the taboo of uh, sitting at the foot of the rabbi being taught in a time when women were forbade from that. And then there was Martha, the extreme contrast to that, all about convention, all about fitting into the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, aspiring, thinking that being the servant of that description was what would please Jesus the most. Martha, the head of the household, the big sister, the manager, the domestic goddess, 
focused on tasks and details and responsibilities. When one task was done, ready to move on to the next, when one list is done, there are three or four waiting. Busy, busy, do the work, get the details done, Martha. Who else is on this list? Mary Magdalene. Often confused with some of the other Marys, but she had been demon-possessed that Jesus delivered her of seven demons. Wow. Talk about baggage. Where did she come from? What did she go through that she found herself in that circumstance? She was among these group of women who actually sponsored, cared for Jesus, paid for this entourage out of their own money. And the other two that are mentioned on this list among the women were Joanna and Susanna. Also, businesswomen, women of some means, capable managers, who put those gifts and that experience and those resources to work in caring for and following Jesus. Let's expand the group just a little bit more. And if you do that, you'll find a Roman centurion, a commander. You find Joseph of Arimathea, a great theologian and intellectual Expand the circle a little more. You find a Samaritan woman who not only is outcast as part of a disgraced people, but even among her own people is outcast because of her moral choices who found grace in Jesus' eyes. We could continue to expand this circle, but what do we find? How do we answer the question, what kind of person can leave behind one life and follow Jesus? What kind of person... And the answer is this, simply anyone who says yes. What an interesting mix. All walks of life, all levels of education, all levels of social standing and financial well-being, various degrees of political and religious points of view, all coming together and finding one thing in common, a rabbi who happens to be not just full of wisdom, but who is himself God in human form, calling them to come, follow me, and I will change you. All of us, whether we like it or not, can find ourselves in that list. There isn't a single person that Jesus does not call out to and say, you, you are perfect for this. Right now where you are, you, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What we focus on, of course, is in Christ and new creation and old, gone, new come. But the word I want you to look at is the second word of the verse. What is it? Anyone. Anyone. So what does that mean for us at the journey? What that means is that this is a place where anyone can hear the words of Jesus. And they can come from whatever walk of life, whatever position of success or failure, influence or obscurity, doesn't matter. Because in the journey that Christ takes us, it's not who you are at the beginning that matters at all. It's who you become as you walk with him. Come, follow me. Let's pray together. Father, what an interesting thing to just step back and to look at these people. And in in them, we see ourselves. We see each of us, skeptics and and, uh, believers, lovers and and haters and uh, 
those with uh, intellectual wisdom and those with practical knowledge, busy buddies and poets, engineers and musicians. We are all equally loved by you, equally valued, equally called to come into a transforming journey with you where we find grace, where we find healing, where we find eternal life. Thank you for that, Father. May we be that kind of place that welcomes all people from all places, just as you would welcome them. In Jesus' name, amen.